you for this day. We thank you for the time to come to pause in the middle of busy lives and busy weeks and focus on you. And I pray today that as we study Matthew, that our minds would be renewed, that as we study the epic work that you are doing in sending your son, the king, that we would set our minds on things above where he is, where he's seated at the, seated at the right hand of God, that as we study and learn, we would master what we are learning so that it would change our lives and impact every area of our life, our discipleship, our parenting, how we interact with others, our evangelism, our love and our worship for you. I pray that we would become worshipers of you who are more and more refined through each lesson that we do as we study your word, that we would make you known and that we would love you. And I pray that you bless this time in Christ's name. Amen. So last week, in my um, nervousness to cover the Old Testament, I didn't give credit to, again, Dr. Abner Chow. I listened to his sermon. It's called God Begins, God Wars, and God Wins. And in that sermon, he tells the story of the entire Bible in one setting. He goes from Genesis to Revelation, and I'd listened to it a couple times. I've listen to a lot of his classes online, and so sometimes I think I've internalized what I've learned to the point that I'll be quoting him or throwing out his phrases and not even giving him credit, so I strongly recommend that resource to you. It was hugely, hugely helpful to me in my study last week. If you go to, on the back of your lesson, that there's a website, gracechurch.org. If you were to go to that website and just click on the sermon tab, tab and on teacher, put in the name Abner, it'll pop up, and it's a really great resource, and it was hugely helpful to me. So as you are turning to the book of Matthew, Last week, I gave you a purpose statement, or I reminded you of our purpose statement for the, our Old Testament study, and I want to give you the purpose statement for our New Testament study. I think purpose statements are incredibly helpful in keeping us focused, on bringing us back to center. There's so much we're covering. We can get kind of lose the forest for the trees, and so that's why I love a purpose statement, to just bring us back to what is the crucial point. So I'm going to read this through a, couple, through a couple times if you're taking notes. Don't worry if you don't get it all the first time. And it says, the purpose of the study of the New Testament is to see God's master plan through scripture, understanding how it all fits together as a whole and reveals Jesus the Messiah, his church, and his future kingdom. So again, the purpose of the study of the New Testament is to see God's master plan through all scripture, understanding how it all fits together as a whole and reveals Jesus the Messiah, his church, and his future kingdom. So that's going to be the focus of our study this year. And as we begin, before we dive into Matthew, I want to talk a little bit about the intertestamental period. What's the intertestamental, inter oh, I can't get that out. What is that time period? It is the time from the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament. It's the 400 years where we don't have written revelation. Yet there were many, many things that were going on that were impacting who the Jewish person was, who the audience is that Matthew's writing to. We, Matthew's writing to a first century Jew, and we want to get into their mindset. I was thinking about this. Yesterday was the anniversary of 9-11. I bet, in fact, by a show of hands, who knows where they were when they heard about 9-11? Everybody. It had a huge impact on our national identity. Everything since then has been different. If someone were to talk to you about what it means to be an American, you would probably talk about 9-11. You might also talk about other great events or major events that we've had. You might talk about the Civil War or our War for Independence. You might talk about our ideals like freedom or the American dream. Well, we're going to look at four major events that really shape, and, and four stories, if you will. Like, we have 9-11, these four things that really shape who the Jewish people are during this intertestamental period. And the first one we're really familiar with, um, the first one is the exile. So there's a little overlap, um, but an aspect of the 
exile that we didn't really focus on when we were studying it, David Hoftitz in his book, or in his chapter of the book, What Did the New Testament Authors Really Care About, says this about the exile. He says, tragedy often shapes a people group, and the exile was no exception. The loss of the promised land and the destruction of the Jewish temple had an enormous effect upon the Jewish psyche, since these were, the two these were two important pieces of their identity. The only item left to help define, to help define a Jew was the law. The renewed importance of the law can be seen in the establishment of gathering houses or synagogues for the reading of the law and for prayer. So we're going to see that the law is going to come to a, a much higher focal point for the Jews, and they're going to identify with the law during this intertestamental period in a way that they didn't before. And, and they're going to add to it their oral traditions. We're going to see that. But there is one bright spot. It is during this time that the death of formal idolatry occurs. You know, when we come to New Testament Jews, they're not following after the gods of the Greeks and the Romans, are they? You know, they've really identified with the law at this point, yet still in many ways have missed the mark. So that's the first major event, the exile. The second major event, which we're just going to barely touch on, is the Persians. They were the major um, rulers of the world at that time, and they let them return to the land. But remember, when they return to the land, they're still really in exile because they're still being ruled over by foreigners. They're not independent. So they come back to the land, and that brings us to our third story, the Greeks. Alexander the Great comes, and he is going to defeat all of the Persians, and he is going to rule. And this is significant because for the first time since Babel, the world is going to have a common language, and the language is going to be Greek. There, it's what they call the Hellenization of the world. The whole world becomes, in a sense, Greek, right? If you remember way back into <laughs> his high school when we studied that, and, and it ha it's a, the Greek culture has an influence over the whole world, and the Jews were no exception. Many of them really start adapting and becoming part of Greek culture and Greek society. The upside of this is, this is why the New Testament is written in Greek. The upside is the gospel is going to spread much more quickly because of this common language, because of this common tongue. The downside is we virtually lose the Hebrew language. It comes down to where only the rabbis know Hebrew anymore. In fact, fun aside, by the time you get to the modern state of Israel after World War II, what you have today is called modern Hebrew because the Hebrew people had, the Jewish people had literally lost a national language. And you, to really be, an, and, and the people who were restarting Israel after World War II said, to be a nation, we have to have a language. That's how critical it is. And that's why we have the modern Hebrew today. So this is where the demise begins. Coming back to this, after Alexander dies, his four generals war to decide who's going to have dominance, who's going to control. And I'm not going to walk you through who gets what land. Just know that where is Israel? Israel is still where it's always been, the land in between, right? It's between the north and the south. And so it's often where these battles occur. It's often where you have the marching armies going through. It's often the source of conflict. And this is going to hit a peak when Antiochus, I can, I can say this name every time I practiced yesterday, and every time I say it now, I can't get it. Antiochus, I can't, I can't say it. It's literally a mental block. But there's this guy, and his name is A-N-T-I-O-C-H-U-S, the fourth. And he hates the Jews, and he comes into power. And he tries to eradicate the everything about them, okay? He bans all copies of the law. He says you can't observe the Sabbath, you can't observe the festivals, you can't circumcise your children. And he goes so far as to offer a pig on the temple and completely desecrate it. That's a fulfillment of Daniel 11, 11.31. And it's under this time the Jews said, we've had enough. And you might maybe have heard of the Maccabean Rebellion. So there was a man and his sons, and they lead the Maccabean Rebellion, and they're successful. 
And for the first time since they've gone into exile, Israel is independent from foreign rule. And it is under this time why they're independent that there are three groups or factions or sects of the Jewish people that, that kind of come up. It's the first time we hear about them, and they're going to be major players in the New Testament, so we're going to look at them. And the first one are the Pharisees. And it might surprise you to know that if you were to live at this time, before Jesus, at this time, you probably would have been a fan of the Pharisees. Probably would have liked them. They were the conservative group. They were the ones who believed in the entire Old Testament. Most of the other Jews only picked portions of it. They believe in the entirety of Scripture. They're the ones who were the keepers of purity and holiness. They hated the Hellenization of the, 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 the Greeks were doing to the Jewish people, and they fought against acclamation and becoming the, the things that the foreign people were. They were the ones who were the, the largest and most popular Jewish group, and the reason that they were popular is they came from the people. They weren't the elites. They were the grassroots movement. But because their power comes from the people, they see Jesus as a threat to their power. They're ultimately going to love their power and their oral tradition above the law and want that. So the first group is the Pharisees. The second group is the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees are the political group. They're the ones who care about wealth. They care, care about power. And they're the ones who control the highest court in the land. So if you need justice, you're going to the Sadducees. They only believe in the Pentateuch. They don't believe in the whole Bible. They don't believe in a resurrection. They don't believe in angels. They reject a lot of the teachings of Scripture. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees do not like each other. They're on, it's like the Republican Democrats. And so it shows you how much they hated Jesus that they unite to get rid of him and how much they saw that he was a threat. And then you have the third group, the Zealots. And the Zealots, again, according to this book, what did the New Testament authors really care about. They are similar in many ways to present-day terrorists. These Jewish fanatics did anything possible to advance the cause of God, their definition of the cause of God, in the midst of pagan rulers in Israel. So you have to have all the, that history to kind of understand when these phrases are going to get thrown out of the New Testament, who they are, who they represent, how the people would have viewed them. Well, Jewish independence didn't last very long. The Romans come in and they conquer, and they make the whole world Rome. They do this in 63 BC, and this brings us to our fourth and final major event that we're going to look at. And when the Romans conquer, they make a man named Herod the governor of Galilee. And he is so successful at ruling Galilee that they give him the title, the honorary title, King of the Jews. But remember back, all the way back to Genesis, Jacob and Esau. Remember, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Remember when we got to Obadiah, we said that the Jews, ha like in Monopoly, you have the get out of jail free card, and the Jews had the we beat Edom card. No matter what, the Jews trumped Edom because God had chose them. And no matter how bad things got, Edom was always lower than them on the ladder until the book of Obadiah when it says even Edom is gonna have some victory over you that's how great your judgment is we talked about that well guess who Herod's a descendant of he's an Edomite so there is no way the Jews are gonna let an Edomite be their king and there is huge political tension between them because of this they are not okay with this but Herod has some political savvy and so he gets rid of his wife and marries another wife who's Jewish who is one of the Maccabean descendants, okay? So he marries into, so he's trying to buy, I'm a little bit Jewish, and he builds them a beautiful temple, a temple like they haven't seen since Solomon day, Solomon's days. And it's, it's a wonder. It's, a, it's an amazing temple. So he's trying to buy the people's favor. So they hate him, but he's giving them things they like, and it's just always a tense relationship, okay? And also under the Roman rule, they had about a 50% tax. So if you were in any way suffering, if you were a widow, if you were an orphan, if you were in any way disabled, life was incredibly difficult for you in Israel. And then again, remember, 
Just like the Greeks Hellenized the world, so did the Romans. And you're in the crossroads of where everything in the world is happening. And so you're just inundated constantly with the influences of this culture. What does this culture look like? Emperor worship, pagan worship, occult worship. It has a huge influence of Epicureanism and Stoicism. And so this is what's going on when we open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. So if you turn with me there, Matthew chapter 1. And the title of today's message is The Arrival of the King. And in these first four chapters, there is one point that Matthew is making. There is one argument that he is showing us. And if you leave today and just know chapters 1 through 4 show that Jesus is the king, that's the point. <laughs> Matthew is telling his Jewish readers, here he is. And it's clear immediately from verse 1. So our first point today, and I'm taking this from my um, Old Testament professor, Todd Bowen. He has an outline um, of this section, and I just thought it was so easy because it emphasized the king. So our first point is the lineage and birth of the king. And in Matthew chapter 1, we, re we read, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. If you were with us, you're going, covenant promises, covenant promises, Abrahamic covenant, Davidic covenant. That's what he's referencing. If you d it, right here, you realize, if you don't understand the Old Testament, you're going to be lost in the new. Because he's he, kn he knows when he puts these words in his, that his audience is instantly attuned to, this is where the promise is coming. The second thing that the genealogy shows us, genealogies always point us back to Genesis 3.15. Because what have we been doing since Genesis 3.15? We've been tracing the line of the seed. We've been tracing the serpent crusher. And we've traced him through Abraham. And we've traced him through David. And now we're going to trace David's line. And Matthew is showing us, if we weren't in exile, who would be king? Who would be king? And so if you jump down to verse 16, you see that Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom, whom Jesus was born, that's who would have been king. That's where the lineage ends. So if you take Matthew and Luke's um, genealogies, these are the final genealogies. We have traced it from a promise from Eve to the one man, to Jesus. So we're, we are focusing here that the, the covenant promise, the covenant seed, he's come. This is the final genealogy. The emphasis in the genealogy is on David. He's mentioned five times. But there's also a fun little aside. I hope I'm not stealing too much thunder from Sarah when she teaches, um, when she teaches us in Luke. Do you remember in Jeremiah 3630, God curses the king, and he says, your sons will not sit on the throne. This is the direct kingly line. And he says, he, this is after, I think it's Jeconiah burns Isaiah's scroll, and he said, your son won't sit on the throne. And then remember we talked with Mike about how the Davidic dynasty has died, how we've had the funeral dirge over them, because God himself has said, your son's not sitting on the throne. So how do we have the Davidic covenant fulfilled? How is this going to work? Well, Matthew focuses on Joseph's genealogy, but Luke focuses on Mary's genealogy. And Mary is also a descendant from David, but not through Solomon. She's a descendant of David. She is royal blood. So Jesus is the adopted son of Joseph. So when he sits on the throne, he has the legal claim to the throne as the son of Joseph, but he's not really Joseph's son, is he? So he's not really the cursed son sitting on the line. But he really is a descendant of David because his mother is of the royal line. And do you see how God keeps all of his promises? All of them, from his curses to his blessings, and nothing is impossible for him. And these genealogies show us that this is the seed, this is the one, and how he's going to resurrect the Davidic dynasty. So that brings us to the virgin birth. And in, the virgin, in chapter 18, we read, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. They before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. 
So I was sick on Sunday, I didn't make it, but my husband said that Pastor Brian talked about Hannah and her miraculous conception. And I'm, I just love how it all ties together. Actually, First Samuel, you have to really understand it to understand the book of Matthew. We're going to see that as we go through these chapters. But throughout all of redemptive history, starting with Sarah, God has used this barrenness motif, right, these impossible births, to announce a significant player in redemptive history. So you have Sarah, and, I, and then you have Rebecca, and you have Rachel, and you have um, Hannah, and in the New Testament, you even have Elizabeth, in, right? So she has the John. But all of them, though miraculous, were still human conception, right? Now God's going to one-up it, okay? So these were, these were major players in redemptive history, but now this is the one. And we're going to one-up it to a virgin birth. And so it takes that motif, and he's saying, this is the one. This is an even bigger deal than those men. This is an even bigger deal than how I intervened before. And in Isaiah 7:14, it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey. Maybe that part of that verse never stood out to you before, but curds and honey was a poor man's diet. Curds are what you get when you milk a goat, and honey is not like honey from a bee. Um, I, didn't do it, I don't fully understand it, but I think it's from some kind of fruit that just kind of grew wild. So this would just be something that if you're poor and you're out there kind of scavenging for food, this is what you eat. How does the king, how does this Emmanuel, why is he eating the poor man's diet? Because he's a king born in exile, right? Joseph wasn't a wealthy man, was he? This is a king born in exile. And so you see, again, the detail that God has put into fulfilling his prophecy. And then what does his name mean? Emmanuel, God with us. What did we lose in the garden? We lost that fellowship with God. And throughout all redemptive history, God has shown us how he is trying to restore that, to reverse the curse and to bring us back into right fellowship with him. And we saw that picture in, in when he comes, the ladder from heaven to earth with Jacob. And we saw it in the tabernacle. But then, right, the glory of the Lord departs in Ezekiel. And it's been gone. But now God is man and God is dwelling with us. And we see the beginning of how God is going to reverse the curse. And to point one, the lineage of the king, Matthew is saying, he was prophesied. Here's the fulfillment of the prophecy. Here's the genealogy showing he's the fulfillment of the seed. Here's the covenant promises showing he is the fulfillment of the covenant. Here's the king. And the second point is the king honored. So it says in chapter 2, now Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, in the days of Herod, the king's wise men from the, sorry, in the days of Herod the king, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose in the east and have come to worship him. So again, right at the beginning, where is he born? He is born in Bethlehem. And we've said this over and over again. Why Bethlehem? Because we're restarting the Davidic line. All of the kings have been born in Jerusalem since Solomon, but now we're restarting. And so we're going back to Bethlehem, and that fulfills the prophecy in Micah. Again, another fulfillment. And then we see, right, what do we see in the, what, is the, what do the magi represent? They represent their fulfillment of Isaiah 60. And when the king rules, the wealth of the nations are going to come to Israel, Isaiah 60 says. And when the king rules, the, all the nations of the world are going to come and worship Israel's king. Now, this isn't Christ on his throne fully ruling yet, but the king has come, and we see a picture of how the kings from the east are bringing their wealth to the king and how the kings are coming to worship. But also, the great sadness of this passage is that you have foreign kings, right? And they know the king's been born. And they know the scriptures well enough to know that this is his star. And Jesus is about two, people think, when he gets there. They've traveled years to see him and worship him. And when they come to the capital city, does anyone seem to be aware that a king's been born? But it was announced by the angels and the shepherds. 
And he came, eight after he was born, his parents brought him to be circumcised. But how many people recognized him when he came to be circumcised? Just two. His own people aren't receiving him. His own people don't know. In fact, Herod calls his wise men and says, where is this king supposed to be born? They know the scriptures, don't they? Oh, here's where he's going to be born. Here's what it's going to be. So they know the scriptures and yet are completely blind to it being fulfilled. And you, but yet you have these foreigners who know. And as, again, a fun aside, we can't be dogmatic about this, but how would these foreigners have known? Many scholars, biblical scholars, believe it's because of Daniel, because Daniel was in the east, right? And he was among the magicians. He was among the wise men, and he taught. And with all of his faithfulness, we can't imagine that he wasn't an evangelist and didn't explain what he believes. We can't be dogmatic, but there's strong reasons to believe that he probably, it's probably from Daniel's influence so many hundreds of years before. But, so, point one, the lineage of the king. Point two, the honor of the king that again fills um, the king honor, which again fulfills prophecy. Point three is going to be the king delivered. Do you remember um, in Deuteronomy 30 where it said you're looking for a prophet like Moses says, you're going to see a prophet like me, a prophet greater than me? We're looking for that prophet. Well, what happened when Moses was born? Pharaoh tries to kill all the male children. What happens when Jesus is born? We have Herod in verse 16. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under. Herod is the new Pharaoh. And Jesus is the prophet of Deuteronomy that has been foreseen. And remember how we talked a lot about corporate solidarity? Remember what corporate solidarity, we used the example of David and Goliath. David represented the people of Israel when he fought. Goliath represented the Philistines when he fought. So when David wins, it's as if the nation wins. And if Goliath won, it would be as if the Philistines won. Remember, that's what happened in Adam. In Adam, all fall. He stood for humanity. The king has to stand for his people. The king has to have solidarity with his people. And so just as Israel suffered and just as Israel was persecuted, here we have the king suffering and being persecuted, but he's also delivered. So we see again that the Deuteronomy prophecy is fulfilled, and when he comes back, more prophecy is fulfilled because he goes and lives in Galilee. And today we love Galilee because that's where Jesus is from. But when Jesus was there and no one knew where he was, that was the state you didn't want to call home. This was not tex Texas where we're all proud to be from Texas. This was the state you didn't want to claim. I'm not going to throw a name on any states in case I offend someone. But this was the region you didn't want to come from. This was the place that was shameful to be from. And how many times, Psalm 22, 6 through 8, Isaiah 49, 7, Isaiah 53, 2 through 3, he's going to be despised. In fact, we'll see them say later, can anything good come out of Nazareth, right? So he's going to go live in a despised region, even though he's from Judah. So again, more and more prophecy being fulfilled. So the king's lineage and birth, the king is honored, the king is delivered, and fourth, the king is announced. And this brings us to chapter 3 in John the Baptist. But to really understand what's happening with John the Baptist, we have to go back to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel is the blueprint for the king, right? How are we going to know the king? What is the king supposed to do? Who is the king supposed to be? How is the king supposed to act? Samuel is laying out for us who the king is supposed to be. And so in 1 Samuel, we have the miraculous birth of Samuel, right? And Samuel is a prophet, and he is a Nazarite from birth. And he, remember we called him the kingmaker. He's the one who announces the king. He's the one who says, this is the king. Well, if we were in the book of Luke, if you want to flip over, you can. Luke, had, Luke tells us about John the Baptist. John the Baptist had a miraculous birth, right? And he's a Nazarite from birth. And Jesus says he's the greatest prophet that's come, right? He's a prophet. He's a Nazarite. And who does he announce? He, so just as David, the first king is announced, the true king was announced, here is John, the forerunner, 
following the exact same blueprint as 1 Samuel, and he is announcing the king. So John the Baptist comes, and he's preaching in the wilderness, and he's fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 40, right? That it says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. But what is he preaching? He's preaching in verse 2, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven. Uh, the rest of Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven because saying the kingdom of God would have been offensive to Jewish sensibilities and how they use the term God. But this is the same as the kingdom of God. And why is it at hand? Because Jesus is about to come. Jesus is here. He's about to come. And so what do, what do we do in response to the king coming? Do we go and get ready to set up a great big party? Do we go buy a fa- fabulous outfit? We repent. We prepare our hearts, right? What does it mean? What was his message? It means, especially to his audience that day, you need to trust in your king. You need to turn and have faith in him. You can't trust in your lineage. You can't trust in your oral traditions. You can't trust in how well you can check the boxes of the law. You have to trust in a personal relationship with him. And what does he say in verse 8? You have to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This can't be lip service. This has to be genuine from the heart. So we see that John the Baptist announces the king, and he is the new Elijah the prophet who was foretold. So remember we said a prophet greater than Moses and Elijah who's going to come. Those two prophets were prophesied to come before Christ and here they are. They have come and now Christ is coming on the scene to begin his ministry. So the king is born, the king is honored, the king is delivered, the king is announced and now if you still weren't convinced, the king is identified by God. Read with me in Matthew chapter 13 and Jesus came, sorry, chapter 3 verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to, Jor- to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the waters, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Psalm 2, 6 through 8 says, speaking of the king, I have, sent m- I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The Psalms were their hymn book. The Psalms were, and this is number two in the hymn book. They knew this song, and they knew that the one who was God's son is the king because psalm 2 is all about the king and what the king will do and god the voice from heaven is saying this is my son this is the king this is the king and then he also says this is my son with whom i am well pleased that's a fulfillment of isaiah 42 where he says this is the son that i will delight in but it's also a reference to genesis 22 2 when you flip over to genesis 22 2 this is where abraham God is telling him to sacrifice Isaac. And after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, right? The son you love, the son with whom you are pleased, right? And you're going to go sacrifice him. Now, we know that Isaac wasn't sacrificed, but this son will be the sacrifice. So he's the king, and he is the one who's pleasing to God, and he is going to be the sacrifice. And in Jesus being baptized, he also identifies that John's message was the right message. John was preaching the truth, repent. And so we see the king is identified by God. And this brings us to six, the king is tempted. Now, again, we have to understand 1 Samuel to understand the temptations. So Jesus, it says in verse 1, when Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
we have to go back to corporate solidarity. The king has to represent his people. The king has to stand in for his people. He has to bear them. Well, who goes into the wilderness? It really begins with Adam, right, when he's kicked out of the garden. But then you have Moses fleeing from Pharaoh into the wilderness, and then you have Israel in the wilderness. And what does God accomplish in the wilderness? In the wilderness is where he refines. In the wilderness is where he made the generation ready to go into the promised land, where he made Moses ready to be the leader. And in 1 Samuel, who else goes into the wilderness? King David does, right, before he takes his throne. And when David goes into the wilderness to have solidarity with his people, he is tested three times. And in 1 Samuel 21 and 22, he is tested, and we could call this the test of bread. Remember, he's running from Saul, and he lies to the priest, and the priest gives him some bread, the table of show bread, to eat. And David, and David thought he was lying to protect the priest so that Saul wouldn't hurt them. But he eats the bread, David goes on his way, and Saul kills all the priests, doesn't he? Because they help David. And so that's a fail. David didn't trust God. He lied, and the priests all died. The second test is in 1 Samuel 23, 24. It's the test of God's word. David and his men are hiding in the cave. And Saul comes in, remember, to go to the bathroom. And David's men say, God said Saul would die by your hand. That's not what God said. God said that you would rule, that you would be the king, but he never said you were going to kill Saul. In fact, we know that that's not how Saul dies. But David listens to him and cuts the corner of the robe, right? And then doesn't his conscience smite him and say, you're not supposed to touch the Lord's anointed? So they twisted God's word, and David fails that test. And then in 1 Samuel 25, 26, we have the sin of presumption, or the test of presumption. And this is where David and his men have been protecting the no-good Nabal. Nabal has all these sheep, and they've been making sure that no one steals his sheep, and no one hurts his um, shepherds, and they've been protecting him, and now David needs some help, and Nabal says, I'm not going to help you. And David says, well, I'm going to kill you. Well, is David the king? Does David have a right to execute? Does David have a right to judgment? It would have been murder. In fact, that's why Abigail, right, comes and stops him, and he says, thank you. Thank you for, for causing me to have this blood on my hands. Right? She stopped him from murder. And so he was acting like the king before he was the king. And he fails that test. Now look with me back at Matthew chapter 4. And in verse 3, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Dave, God, Christ, is tested with the bread. He is tested, and what it, how does he answer? He answers, with scripture. He answers, I don't live by bread alone, but I live by the word of God. And he passed the first test. And then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to a test. Satan can quote scripture, but he's twisting it. And he's twisting it the wrong way to have Christ test God. But what does he do? He says, I know what the scripture says, and I know not to test God. I'm not going to do that. And he passes the second test, the test of God's word. And then in verse 7, Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And Oh, sorry, verse 8. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. What is Satan tempting him with? take the kingdom without the cross, to take the kingdom without the suffering, to take the kingdom before God's time, and to worship him. And again, Christ passed the test, and again, he uses scripture to refute Satan. 
Again, Dr. Chow says, the king must have solidarity with his people. The king must bear them on the shoulders. The king must pass these tests. And Jesus does. So he is the true king. He is the one who is showing, who succeeds where David has failed, who is the second David, who's passed the test of being the king. He is the one who can stand in for his people. He is the one who can carry them. So Genesis, as we're recapping, has said that we're looking for a seed. And Matthew's genealogy says, this is the one, this is the seed. And Deuteronomy says, you're looking for a prophet. And Matthew says, here is your prophet. And Isaiah says, there's going to be a virgin birth. And Matthew says, this was the virgin birth. And Micah says, he has to be born in Bethlehem. And Matthew tells us that's where he was born. And Samuel says, the king has to pass these three tests. And we see in uh, chapter 4 how he passed all these tests. It is the undisputed fact that Jesus is the king. The king has arrived. And with that, Christ goes on in the rest of chapter 4 to begin his ministry, right? It says that um, he he preaches in verse 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he calls his disciples and says, follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. And then what does he go and do in verse 23? He goes throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction among the people. Right? He's reversing the curse. He's bringing the good news. He's announcing the kingdom. The king has arrived. And so as we close today, I, I hope, there's two things I hope that are strongly impressed upon us. One, the importance of God's word. Right? 40 days in the wilderness, you're starving. I, I went to Israel. I spent 10 minutes in the wilderness, and I was done. And that's not an exaggeration. <laughs> there are flies like you can't understand. And there is heat that just seems to be like it's a unique brand of heat in the world. And it is miserable, and there's no relief. Like, you just look everywhere, and you're like, where can you go to get away? There's no escape from it. It is horrible. And, and you just think, wow, because they, they, they have a little tour bus, right? And they say, go out there and journal for 10 minutes. See how you like it. And you're like, okay. Well, I have a whole new appreciation of everything that happened in the wilderness <laughs> and for my 10 minutes. And then you get back on the air conditioning bus, and you really thank the Lord that you live in this time period. Um, but you just realize, like, he, he was hot and thirsty and very, very hungry. And what was in his heart and what came out was the word of God. And if we want to stand against the devil's schemes, if we want to, if we want to obey, if we want to repent and follow the kingdom, we have to be women of the word, and we have to be women whose word is in our heart and it's what comes out. And it goes away so easily. This summer was a very unique summer in our life. It was very crazy and very different. And even as I've studied this, I'm like, man, I forgot so much from last year. And I taught it. Like, I had to stand up and say it. And I'm like, what did I say again? What was that point? If you don't stay keeping your eyes fixed on your author and perspective, you don't renew your mind every day. It's our daily bread. Remember we said it's like manna. Today's devotions don't carry into tomorrow. You have to be in it every day. You have to be renewing your mind. So I hope all of you are doing the memorization. And if you're not memorizing Ephesians with us because you're doing something else, that's great. But if you're not memorizing at all, please feel convicted. I don't apologize for that. You need to be, <laughs> okay? And then the second thing that I hope that we're in awe of is just, do you, like, I just didn't understand all of this in Matthew 4. I didn't understand all the tests until I studied it, and I just thought, wow, like how much the Old Testament informs the New, and so to see that full picture come through, and it just makes the meaning and the purpose and, the, um, and what, who Christ is as the king so much richer. And so I hope that our worship is richer. And I hope that our love for God is richer because we have a deeper understanding of what it means to be the king. Let's pray.
Father, thank you that you sent your son, and thank you that he is the king, and thank you that he is coming again and is going to rule, and thank you for how we can understand and know him better, how we can, um, and please help us to make him known. As we know him better, help us to make him known. Please bless our study this week. Help us to keep our eyes focused on you, our minds renewed in the word. Give us the ability to memorize your word and hide it in our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.